Thank you ever so much, Claire, for inviting me. It's a real honour, actually, for me to be here, and I feel quite emotional about being here. And I wanted to kind of start by saying um, how nice it was to be back, but actually I'm kind of not really back, because I've never been in this building before. <laughs> and um, I'm actually feeling almost in a state of mourning at the moment for the old Balfour Library, <laughs> and um, feeling quite emotional that it's not there anymore, <laughs> and kind of remembering the kind of the smells and the sights and the feelings um, of how I used to feel when I was in the old Balfour Library, and I always felt very, very happy when I was in that place. And without being too self-indulgent about it, there are some slight echoes between how I'm feeling about that right now and some of the things I'm going to talk about in my paper today. Um, so what the paper today um, is about um, isn't me. Um, it's about Kareni refugees living in camps um, on the Thai-Burma border, on the Thai side of the Burma border. Um, and I first worked with those refugees back in 1996 uh, at the beginning of my initial field research for my DPhil. The material and analysis that I'm going to present today um, comprises threads that are drawn right back through the period from 1996 right through to today. Thinking through the data collected in those early and in much later field visits and in ongoing contacts maintained with Kareni friends in Thailand and now elsewhere, because of UNHCR's ongoing programme of resettlement to third countries. So anchoring the discussion in aspects of life in the camps, I want to explore a little bit of the possible significance of aesthetics in forced displacement. So that's the question that I'm going to return to later on. But before that, I would like to uh, scope out a little of the terminology So it's important to explain that when talking about aesthetics, I need not be, and in fact I'm not, talking about either art or taste. Those two have been closely intertwined with understandings of what properly constitutes the subject of the discipline of aesthetics, particularly since the 18th century, when Alexander Baumgarten sought to redefine aesthetics from its more general original Greek reference to sensory experience and perception. Of course, aesthetics and art, in particular, do belong together, and where they should or shouldn't separate is a matter of definition of what one means by each of the terms in question. Anyone who's even a bit familiar with this area will be aware that there's quite a lot of discussion about it in both anthropology and philosophy, with different authors of course, reaching divergent conclusions. Personally, I'm sympathetic to the view that's expressed by our own Jeremy Coote in his essay in the still landmark 1992 collection of essays on anthropology, art and aesthetics that he co-edited with Anthony Shelton. In his essay, Jeremy claims that all human activity has an aesthetic aspect. I'm quoting, We are always though at varying levels of awareness, concerned with the aesthetic qualities of our aural, haptic, kinetic and visual sensations. 
end quote. He goes on to point out that if we accept this premise, then to define as art all those human activities that have an aesthetic element to them would be to remove the status of art from any and all of them, which would be absurd, because everything would then become art in some way. He cites anthropologist of aesthetics Jacques Maquet as support for the independent treatments of art and aesthetics. He also references the philosophers Nick Zangwill and T.J. Diffie, both of whom make the case for aesthetics as a subject of inquiry that can be, but equally need not be, associated with art. Diffie, for example, emphasises the importance of exploring aesthetic experience, in inverted commas, whatever that might turn out to be, and the value of having a notion of aesthetics in analyses of religion, for example, as well as in studies of art. So of what, then, might such a notion of aesthetics and aesthetic experience consist? Ultimately, an ideally comparative anthropological study should contribute significantly to attempts to define this area of human activity. But as with any other area of inquiry, one needs a working understanding of what it is that one's trying to focus upon. Coote's solution is to have recourse to, quoting again, everyday usage of the word aesthetic by writers on the, on the groups of the southern Sudan with whom he's concerned, for example, Evans Pritchard, Buxton and Burton. And he interprets those writers as using the word aesthetic to mean quote, something like the set of valued formal qualities of objects or valued formal qualities of perception. From this, he defines the anthropology of aesthetics as the comparative study of valued perceptual experience in different societies. Now, I think that's a very useful working definition. I discuss it at more length elsewhere, but just today, I would just like to briefly reflect before I move on on just two aspects of that definition. First, in what he then goes on to say after having made that definition and in the, most of the rest of that entire essay collection and in most other writings on the anthropology of aesthetics, that, and this is not a criticism of those writings, it's just what the subject of what they happen to focus on there is a tendency for that focus to be largely about the visual. So, for example, Coote adds after his definition, and as I say, this isn't criticism because bear in mind he has already drawn our attention to all of the areas of sensory experience as being potentially aesthetic. But he adds after his definition that as part of the successful execution of the anthropology of aesthetics, we need to explore a society's visual aesthetic, to develop what he calls, paraphrasing Baxendall's period eye, the cultural eye. This means, he says, seeing as the group being studied sees, identifying the particular qualities of form, shape, colour, sheen, pattern, proportion, and so on, recognised within that society as evidenced in language, poetry, dance, 
body decoration, material culture, sculpture, painting, etc. He does point, as I've said, to the full range of our senses and the extent to which the perceptions that we form are a result, as a result of them are attributed with aesthetic aspects. But most of his essay is concerned with the visual. Morphe, too, for example, acknowledges that the aesthetic potentially involves all the senses, but in practice his particular case study centres on the visual. There's nothing wrong with this visual emphasis, of course. The visual domain is highly important, particularly in the realm of art and particularly in certain cultural contexts. Nonetheless, the studies of sensory anthropology have showed us that the significance and complexity of the roles played by all our senses and the extent to which our interpretations of the data we receive from our sense organs are culturally constituted. We can apply the framework of aesthetic anthropology by seeking both the characteristics of sensory perceptions and experiences and the values that are attributed to them and to the material objects and settings associated with them amongst a particular group. The second and last point I want to make about that working definition of an anthropology of aesthetics is um, a slightly pedantic one, really, but it's just the need, and this is um, something that I think characterises language that's... This isn't just a point about... um, any single author here, and it's something that I'm guilty of in my own writing as well, but it's a need to avoid a slippage between how we characterise the qualities of objects on the one hand and the qualities of perceptions on the other. So, for example, without naming any particular authors, we might have references to the aesthetic qualities of objects or the formal qualities of perceptions. Yet I would argue that physical objects have no aesthetic qualities per se. Aesthetic qualities are attributed to them as the result of culturally and historically constructed judgments made by human subjects. On the other hand, objects do have material qualities, including formal ones, but our perceptions do not. So to talk about formal qualities of perception, for example... I would argue, is another example of a slippage. So our perceptions are actually moulded impressions of material objects and their qualities based on the subjective interpretation of the limited data that we receive from our sense organs. Philosophers and cognitive scientists, who are at two different ends of the spectrum of those who are interested in these kinds of things, actually are both commonly quite fastidious with their language in this area and in these interdisciplinary days we perhaps need to be similarly so and I would count myself amongst those who needs to pay attention to that. So um, I will explore some of what can be said about Kareni aesthetics but first I need to introduce you to the Kareni and to the Kareni refugee camps. Kareni come from Burma's smallest ethnic state, which is a place with uh, considerable humanitarian and military problems. It's uh, on the east 
eastern side of Burma, for those, I'm sorry, I should have put a map in the PowerPoint and I didn't. For those of you who can't visualize um, Burma, it's kind of a bit like a bowl, so that the middle of it is a lowland area where the uh, majority are ethnic Burman people, and then around the edges are mountainous areas which are divided into seven um, ethnic states. Um, and the smallest of those is what is called Kareni State, which is on the eastern side, um, on the border with the northwest of Thailand, uh, which is where the Kareni people um, that I'm going to be talking about come from. So as I say, it's a place with very considerable humanitarian and military problems, um, with the notable exception of field research by an anthrop American anthropologist called F.K. Lehman, um, which was um, done in the late 1960s. Um, very little anthropological work apart from my own has been conducted with the Kareni at all. And long-term research in the refugee camps, such as I was able to do in the late 1990s, is now not feasible at all um, because of the uh, way the conditions have changed in the camps. I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, Having said that, some more recent shorter-term work has been done with Kareni refugees um, in the 2000s, um, but not of a long-term camp-based nature. The population inside Kareni state, where the refugees come from, is um, highly diverse, and that diversity ends up being concentrated still further by a kind of distillation process, which is the forced migration process itself. So that diversity consists of a range of, of things. Um, Ethno-linguistically, the Kareni as a whole belong to the wider Karen or Karenic family, which is um, usually agreed to be part of the Tibeto-Burman language family. Um, amongst the Kareni, uh, or under the Kareni umbrella, if you like, there are, depending on who you ask and how uh, they self-define, there are up to about a dozen um, different subgroups in terms of um, speaking slightly different mother tongues or dialects and having different um, ethnonyms. They uh, fall under four broad groups, which are the Kiya, who that's their own name for themselves. They're also known as the Kareni um, in older literature and by the Burmese it's in a more narrow sense of Kareni. The Kiyor, the Pakyu Karen, and um, various Kiyan groups. So they're very ethno-linguistically diverse. They're also very diverse in terms of their educational background, which um, ranges from absolutely zero up to master's degree level. Um, they are diverse in religion. Um, there are lots of Christians, particularly Roman Catholics um, and a significant Baptist minority. Um, but there are also uh, Buddhists and many people still practicing traditional religion. Um, and they are also diverse in uh, sort of socioeconomic class, essentially. So many people, the majority of people, were subsistence farmers before they came into the refugee camps in Thailand but some were following specialised um, occupations. Uh, their political awareness, um, which is not something I'm going to go into today, but um, the political background and agenda of um, different groups is something that's also very diverse too. 
some of the refugees, um, particularly members of the political elite, have been in Thailand for 40 or 50 years. Uh, the first significant numbers, though, came into Thailand in 1989 after a major military offensive against the army of what's called the Kareni National Progressive Party, the KMPP, and many more have been coming ever since. Um, some have come in eventual despair at increasingly intolerable humanitarian and conflict situation um, in their local areas, um, including violently enforced village relocations carried out by the Burmese army uh, in order to cut off support to the KNPP guerrillas, um, and those continue to go on um, on a regular basis. But also, um, village relocations are always also carried out in order to continue dam development projects. Um, as a result of these relocations and other abuses, um, there are also lots of internally displaced persons, IDPs, still inside Kareni State, uh, as well as people who've actually come across the border into the Thai camps. Uh, and these are increasingly well documented um, in various literature. If anybody's interested, I can um, give you information about that afterwards. The Kareni and the other refugees in Thailand are formally termed temporarily displaced persons by the Royal Thai Government. Some of you may be aware that the Thai Government hasn't signed the UN Convention relating to the status of refugees, nor that Convention's protocol, 1967 protocol. And in addition to um, those refugees, temporarily displaced persons, in Thailand there are also many so-called Burmese illegal immigrants in Thailand. Um, and estimates of the numbers of those range from about 1.2 million to about 2 million. Um, and actually where the distinction lies between who's a refugee and who's an illegal immigrant is um, rather, uh, well, anybody's guess really. Um, and often it's a bit of an obscure um, distinction and it can depend on nothing more than just ethnicity, place of origin and who you know in Thailand um, often. Um, it doesn't necessarily, there's not necessarily any distinction in terms of why people have come into the camps or why they have fled um, and so on. Um, during the first period of my field research in the late 1990s, the refugees, the Kareni refugees were organised in the camps under a self-styled government in exile, uh, which was formed by the KMPP, the Kareni National Progressive Party, um, which was operating in armed opposition to the Burmese regime, operating a guerrilla army, in other words. Um, the extent of the KMPP's direct control over the running of the camps, however, has diminished very significantly since that time. Um, UNHCR, since the time I did my fieldwork, UNHCR has now been asked by the Thai government to step in and run the Thai border camps, um, which means um, that the legal position of those refugees has changed, arguably for the better. They are now um, able um, to avail themselves of the resettlement programme, and many have gone to third countries. But the downside is that the situation in the camps is... Um, arguably much worse than it was when I was there. Um, I mean, that's partly because what was already a protracted refugee situation is now protracted by another, what, um, 16 years since I first went there, um, if I've done, added that up right. Um, and um, 
those camps are also now much more constrained than they were. So they are now um, occupied by Thai soldiers on a permanent basis. Foreigners like me couldn't, it wasn't allowed to go and live in a camp when I went there, but you could do it and the Thais turned a blind eye to it because they weren't there in the camps. Now they are and it's just absolutely impossible to go and do that kind of research and it's impossible for refugees to move in and out of the camps to go to the market, to go and get unofficial work, to have the kind of, um, some kind of uh, ability to move um, in and out uh, to the extent that they did before, albeit a very insecure movement, and they were always at risk of arrest. Um, but they had, uh, compared to their situation now, they had uh, something of a relative degree of freedom. So um, that kind of prolonged encampment and increased confinement compared to how the situation was 15, 16 years ago has impacted negatively on um, as you would expect, social and psychological well-being in the camps compared to when I first went there. Um, refugees uh, now, as, uh, as in the 1990s, receive food, medical assistance and other aid from mostly foreign agencies that are coordinated by uh, one big coordinating committee. Um, they um, receive medical and food aid um, and blankets and mosquito nets and other essentials from various different organisations uh, which serve the camps. Camps have uh, churches. That's a Roman Catholic church in the, in the camp that I was based in. Um, they have uh, Catholic and Baptist churches. Um, they have Buddhist monasteries, um, traditional ritual sites, and uh, other public structures include clinics, locked stores for rice and other rations, guest houses and weaving centres, and so on. Um, all the buildings in the camps will be made of bamboo, um, stilted, except for churches, which are not, and um, have uh, thatched roofs, leaf-thatched roofs. I knew quite a few Karenni refugees who made their living um, from particular jobs in the community, such as being a KMPP politician, or being a soldier, or a teacher, or a driver, or a clinic worker, and therefore receiving a salary from the KMPP or from an outside NGO. But the majority of the population makes a living as it can, um, perhaps just surviving on rations, um, perhaps um, by making... Uh, weaving textiles, um, for example, for sale to other refugees or to outside agencies and so on, um, or perhaps by building houses for slightly better off members of the community and that kind of thing. Refugees aren't allowed by the Thai authorities to farm. Um, some have small plots of vegetables around their houses and a number can keep chickens or ducks uh, and if they're really lucky, a pig or two. And you'll see that pigs um, can be quite important um, in a minute. Um, the camps also have a number of banana and papaya trees and the surrounding jungle, when you can get access to it, can provide you with bamboo shoots and other vegetables, firewood, building materials and plant dyes. So, um, what can we begin to say about Karenni aesthetics, displaced or not? 
writing in 1922 in his classic monograph on the Karen peoples more generally, Harry Marshall claimed, and I quote, <coughs> one discovers but few indications of a love of beauty among the Karen. He based his view upon both the relative lack of attempts by the Karen he knew to ornament their dwellings and their failure to comment spontaneously and frequently on natural forms that he considered beautiful, such as a sunset or a landscape. He then, before leaving the scantily in his book, Treated Topic of Aesthetics Altogether, declared that the Karen have a very limited sense of colour and design, which in practice is limited to the woven patterns of some of their garments, and they only have a scant vocabulary for colours. His brief assessment of Karen aesthetics, in other words, is centred entirely upon the visual and on a set of aesthetic values that are his own. So, if they have few words to describe colour, by comparison to the variety of vocabulary in English, and if they're unmoved by the breathtaking mountainous scenery in which they live, then ipso facto they must be fairly insensible to the finer things in life. In reality, of course... Understanding something of the perennial aesthetic is a matter of readjusting our gaze and our other senses too. Field research inside Karenni state is impossible and has been so for over four decades. F.K. Lehman's 1960s work is still ethnographically really useful, but it's written primarily with a view to developing a particular theory of ethnic identity and it doesn't help us a great deal in terms of trying to get an insight into Karenni aesthetics. Beyond his work, there are only a few brief, early, loosely anthropological texts. There's some linguistic work um, addressing the Kia and other groups. Um, there is some historical work on the history of the borders of Karenni state, there are references in personal memoirs of 19th and 20th century colonial servants, and that's about it. But something of Karenni aesthetics, of what Terry Eagleton calls the business of affections and aversions, of how the world strikes the body on its sensory surfaces, can at least be inferred from a combination of some of what one reads in these publications, and, following Harry Marshall, perhaps, although I dismissed him, an initial probing of the lexicon. So from the literature, we can glean ethnographic details of life inside Karenni state that hint at the importance of certain forms of dress and colour therein, specific kinds of body ornaments, specially as may be worn by women, and the peculiar gaits or comportments that they may produce, particular shapes, colours, ritual, movements, sounds, structural and design details observable during the two main annual festivals. And I'll talk a bit more about one of those in particular and a little later. We can also gather that knowledge of the natural environment, of farming, of weaving, of wild plant and animal species is useful and valued and that the generous offer offering of warm hospitality to strangers is a very important feature of Karenni culture. Being hospitable to strangers, of course, 
is at least partly about providing them with food and drink. And we learn too, in some of the earliest writings on the Pereni, that they eat with gusto pretty much anything, including any catchable animal. Thus McMahon wrote in 1876, nothing that is not absolutely poisonous is excluded from their bill of fare. The same early texts also make a point of relaying the extent to which the Kareni liked to drink home-produced, not imported alcohol. And interestingly enough, um, this uh, fondness of drinking combined with um, the alleged eccentricity of the Kareni was exactly the same um, characteristic that everybody kept emphasising to me when I first arrived in Thailand to do field research and before I actually got to the northwest of Thailand and actually met the Kareni. Everybody kept going on about how much they drank. <laughs> when I did meet them, and as I shall return to a little later, I discovered that taste and the world of the gustatory was indeed a very important part, not only of the Kareni sensory register and the aesthetic, but also of their adaptation to displacement. And that's what I want to focus on um, in the latter part of the talk. Turning to language, Marshall seems to be right that there are comparatively few colour descriptors in Korenic languages. So typically you might get one word for uh, a colour, but no additional words for varieties of shade or hue. So um, there's one word for red, li in kia, but no additional labels for the hues or shades that we might have words such as burgundy or cerise or magenta or scarlet, crimson and so on. But there is a relative abundance of vocabulary when it comes to three particular subject areas. Food and cooking, weaving, textiles and clothing, and physical movement and position in and through space. Furthermore, while those three areas of terminology do indeed give us descriptors, so for flavours such as sour, for example, which is cha in kriya, where it's particularly rich isn't so much in relation to adjectives, in relation to describing areas, the words in those areas of action, or it is in relation to action itself. So in kia, for example, there are at least five different verbs which pertain to getting dressed. One, turi, is equivalent to the English generic action of getting dressed. But then there are four others which are far more specific, variously meaning to clothe the lower body, to clothe the upper body, to wear or put on something with fastenings, such as buttons, and to put on something which encircles or encases, which is to plow, such as leg rings or a pullover tunic, for example. In the realm of cooking, at least 11 different action words relate to food preparation and cooking, covering tasks such as melting, pounding, scratching, fermenting and boiling, and include a number of different terms which are concerned with chopping alone. The third area that stands out, as I've already mentioned, relates to physical movement and position. And in a simple verbal analysis, this theme is actually the most striking of all, with at least 33 different verbs relating to movement on foot, each of those verbs having 
well, between them having a range of etymologies and variously distinguishing between forms of movement according to speed, direction of travel, intention, destination or origin. Action then, particularly in relation to those three areas, making and wearing clothes, eating, drinking, cooking, moving through physical space, seems generously provided for in the lexicon. Inside Kareni state, prior to displacement, the Kareni were and are largely shifting cultivators, as I've said, lifting in remote permanent settlements in a highly mountainous, forested terrain. In many cases, weaving their own clothes from homegrown cotton. That active way of life embedded in the landscape seems well reflected in vocabulary. Levels of education and health statuses in the more remote areas in particular were and are very low, with malaria not only a major medical issue, but something of a cultural leitmotif as well. For ethnically Kiyat refugees from central Kareni state in particular, life prior to being forced from their villages by the Burmese army revolved around the annual agricultural and ritual cycles. This area in particular is so remote it hadn't had any Christian missionaries come to it at all. The first Christian missionaries that um, these particular newly arrived refugees from the remote central Kareni state area saw were fellow Kareni refugees who had been in the camps for a much longer time and were Christian who decided to missionise them when they arrived in the camps. Um, women in this much uh, more remote central area um, in particular rarely, they told me, had ever left their village and the fields and the jungle in the particular surrounding area except to visit neighbouring villages at festival, festival time. Men are much more likely to have travelled a bit further, to have gone into town and so on. Um, subsistence farming, hunting and gathering of supplementary food in the jungle and the growing of cotton, gathering of plant dyes, weaving of cloth, cooking of food was the focus of most physical activity and meant that villagers were very familiar with the topography and natural and spiritual ecology of their local environment. So if, as Gosden has put it, each culture creates its own sensory environment, both physically through constructing a material world with its own set of sensory properties, and culturally through emphasising and valuing certain types of sense impressions over others, the nature of the sensory environment created by the Kareni inside Kareni state, as far as we can infer it from, the from both the literature and the lexicon, is an active one, in which movement within and intimate embodied knowledge of and relationships with the landscape are an integral part. Exploring displaced Kareni aesthetics will allow us not only an insight into what happens when people become displaced and how they seek to adapt to that, but also might give us more of a glimpse, even if it's indirect and partial, into the kind of material world they produce inside Kareni state and what particular sense impressions and material forms and qualities the Kareni especially value. So to turn to displace cultural aesthetics then, how do the refugees receive, perceive and respond 
to the very physical experiences of forced migration? What's the role of the different senses in how refugees remember and imagine the place they came from, and in how they seek to create a sense of home in the camps they find themselves in? Are there certain material objects and aspects of the physical environment that become especially important or valued in these processes? And are they more significant in some sensory registers than others? In my research in the camps, there are a number of particular themes that have stood out. Interestingly, in addition to ritual, space and practice, these include two of the very topics that became apparent through that initial examination of literature and language that I've already discussed, and that's particularly clothing and textiles and food and drink. I've examined ritual and clothing and the theme of movement elsewhere. Today I want to spend the rest of the time just talking a little bit more about food and drink, both of which turn out to be really significant components in Kareni social life, myth, ritual, approaches to health and illness, and in coping with and adapting to displacement. So I've said that a consortium of relief agencies provide the refugees living in the camps with um, food uh, relief. What that food relief consists of is rice, salt, chilli, vegetable oil, and a small protein ration that comprises yellow beans or fish paste And immediately that um, brings up some comparisons and contrasts which the refugees themselves make um, most of the time between the food in the camps and the food back home. So there are often, for example, complaints about the quality of the rice. The rice in the camps is said to have a high quantity of broken grains and to be of a generally inferior standard. It's not like Uh, the rice that one would grow or buy um, if one were not a refugee. Furthermore, um, as well as being said to be of mediocre eating quality, it's said to make less good rice beer than the ordinary rice in Kareni state or the sweet sticky rice that gets used for the special occasion of Deku Festival, which I'll talk about in a minute. Also notable is the issuing of vegetable oil and fish paste, um, both of which are not traditional at all in the cooking of any of the Kareni ethnic groups. <coughs> so unlike, um, to take oil, unlike uh, other Karen groups from further south or Burmese groups, other Burmese ethnic groups, the Kareni groups do not traditionally use oil in their cooking at all. So the fact that oil is issued as a ration in the camps um, and as a result it is now used has actually brought about something of a culinary revolution for the Kareni. So um, in the past they were used to dry cooking, smoking, steaming uh, or boiling or stewing their food and now they're actually tending to fry it, which is quite a new thing for them. Um, Fish paste, um, fermented fish paste, is also something that is not um, a traditional part of their diet at all. It is for the Karen groups further south, and it is for other Burmese groups, but it's not um, for the northern Kareni groups. Um, And it's offered, um, it's an option in the rations, so it's 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 an either-or with yellow beans, 
And initially, um, the Perenni tend to take the yellow beans because they're not fish paste eaters. Um, the uh, yellow beans or fish paste are the protein option. But after a while, yellow beans become awfully boring. And um, after a while, people decide to take the fish paste. And after a while, fish paste... It, it, I mean, I got really into fish paste. It's much more interesting than, than um, yellow beans. And people um, tend to uh, stick with that after a while um, because it's much tastier. Um, but the downside of that, um, from a nutritional point of view, is that if you don't have a large or significant amount of dark leafy vegetables, dark green leafy vegetables in your diet, which uh, a lot of the refugees don't, um, you end up with a deficiency of vitamin B6, which the yellow beans do have. Um, and then there is an increasing um, uh, significance, uh, for significantly increasing incidence of beriberi um, in the refugee camps as a result of that, um, as well as uh, an interesting dietary change. Meat, uh, not surprisingly, is relatively hard to get and expensive to buy in the camps, and it's usually a special occasion food. Hunting can be a, a successful means to increase your meat intake for free, although it's harder now than it was for the refugees to go into the jungle around the camps for that purpose. When I was first uh, doing my field research in the 1990s, hunting uh, was a useful means of acquiring food and um, an important leisure activity for young men. When they were successful, the results ranged from small bears, monkeys and porcupine through a range of different types of deer, birds and even bats. Um, all of which got cooked with garlic and chilli and eaten with rice. Um, apparently the bats were very tough. <laughs> um, and that was a, an experiment for bats, I guess. Um, pork um, is the most highly valued meat of all, uh, and for a wedding, people will kill a pig if they have or can get hold of one. A few people in the camps are able to keep a pig or to buy one from another refugee or a Thai villager if they can afford it. The Karenni are also very fond of dog meat, which is slow-cooked with spices and is considered to have uh, important health-strengthening and medicinal qualities, um, particularly the ability to fight malaria. The principally valued flavourings for pork or other meat, um, and indeed vegetable dishes, are garlic and chilli, onion and other spices too, such as ginger or lemongrass, um, and these are grown in the camps and they're also bought locally. Refugees also uh, appreciate a varied vegetable and fruit diet, um, and in my experience, one of the f one of the few things that refugees really complained about, um, really explicitly, got quite down about, to the extent of being prepared to talk about it openly, um, and be gloomy about was a monotonous diet. This is really, really significant to them. Um, so for refugees who cannot afford to buy anything um, in the way of meat or vegetables and who cannot get out to gather anything else to supplement the rations that are coming from um, the NGO consortium, all that they can add is what they can gather from the jungle. And if you can't get into the jungle because of... Um, military restrictions or because you're ill um, or even if you can at certain periods of the year what you can actually get hold of is pretty limited 
um, your diet can end up being very monotonous indeed. So uh, at some times of the year, all that you can get hold of is bamboo shoots and green papayas. And after weeks and weeks on end, that's very monotonous from a Karenni perspective, if that's all you have to add to your rations. Um, I've already said that drink is very important to the Karenni and that they have um, a reputation historically and now amongst outsiders as hard drinkers. Um, they make uh, a fermented beer and a form of spirit which um, usually gets translated as rice whiskey from rice. This is Seymour who uh, was one of the young women I shared my house with making uh, rice beer, siphoning off some rice beer. Um, Distillation in the camps is, is against the camp regulations, but rice whiskey still gets produced uh, frequently. It's considered, as well as being liked, it's considered to have medicinal qualities. Laura, uh, another of my Karenni friends, put it like this, if we have headache, drink it a little, you feel better again. If you drink lots, you feel seriously headache more and more. We must drink one cup a day, it's very good for health. Especially if we drink it for the festival, then we can drink a lot. Kareni whiskey is better than Karen. Karen whiskey is very light and not good for health. During the late 1990s and the early 2000s at least, both forms of rice alcohol were far more easily available in what's now Site 1 than in Site 2. Site 2 is the camp um, that I was based in. Um, and that's largely because in Site 2, um, there's a much greater Baptist uh, population and a much greater temperance inf uh, influence on the uh, camp as a whole. But in Site 1, um, with less of a Baptist influence and more availability of alcohol, there, were also, um, there was also a much greater incidence of antisocial and criminal behaviour. It also is a much more crowded camp, so it's much more crowded, it's more tense, and there's much more alcohol and more social problems. Um, in Site 2, um, outside festival times, alcohol was often very difficult to get hold of indeed. And in my field research, um, I experienced many evenings in the company of young friends who were made very irritable indeed by their inability to get hold of something to drink to alleviate their boredom, <coughs> despite having been there having been around the whole camp. Getting hold of particular food and drink is especially important for festival times or special occasions. Diku, the second most important festival of the ritual year, is held sometime between mid-August and late September, when the ears of the rice plants have begin, begun to swell, and there's an obvious poignancy to that timing in a refugee camp when you can't grow rice. Diku literally means sticky, ku, rice, di and it revolves around the production and consumption of little parcels of cooked sticky rice, um, which um, get wrapped in uh, wild sorghum leaves. The parcels are triangular shape, and they get tied together, which is what's happening here in bundles of three. The, the three sides of the triangle and the three parcels in the bundle um, are said to represent the unity of the three main Kareni subgroups who traditionally practiced the festival, which are the Kiya, the Kiyan, and the Kiyor. The cooked rice inside is eaten by hand, plain or dipped in sugar, and is accompanied by rice beer, preferably extra special rice beer made with sticky rice rather than ordinary rice. 
If it can be got hold of, other special food, such as pork, may also be served during the festival, the entire duration of which is the most sociable time of the year, with the whole community moving around, visiting each other's houses, and partaking of everyone's generous hospitality and bonhomie as music and dancing proceeds around the whole camp. Food and drink are also important in the year's main communal festival, Ghetto Bo, which is the one thing that's more important than Diku. But in, in Ghetto Bo, uh, food is not so much about sharing with each other in houses, but it's about offering to the spirits around the Ghetto Bo pole and on the offering tables at the ritual site. What begins to really indicate the cultural importance of food, drink, and the consumption thereof of the Karen, for the Kareni, however, is not simply the physical presence of the comestibles. It's the extent to which and the ways in which food and drink, eating and drinking, are eaten, talked about, focused upon, and used as metaphor. Eating is a quietly sociable business, where the food, not conversation, takes centre stage. Each diner is served a portion of rice onto their plate by the cook, and then each takes just a small amount at a time of one or two of the dishes that have been prepared to go with the rice. You should eat slowly, savouring the food and appreciating the flavours and not taking too much of the accompanying dishes. A good cook is really appreciated and becomes quickly known and talked about. Women cook more than men, and in a conventional family household it'll usually be the woman who does the cooking. But many men do cook, and many are really good at it. Good cooking smells will often draw people over to hang around the house that they're coming from. An anticipation for food can actually last quite a while. So much of the considerable excitement about Deku Festival in the weeks that were leading up to it, for example, is concentrated on anticipation of the food and the drink, the sticky rice and the good quality rice beer to come. Reminiscence about life inside Kareni State too invariably includes, indeed often centres on the pleasures of particular victuals that cannot or can rarely be experienced in the camps. Eating meat more often, eating a greater variety of wild game, vegetables and fish were all subjects that people often spoke wistfully about in relation to their predisplacement past. This could apply to drink too. Beer made from red corn rather than rice, for example, can rarely be obtained in the camps. Georges, for example, on the last evening of one very memorable Diku festival, waxed lyrically and at some length about the red corn beer in his home village. This was an oft-repeated reverie that I had heard before and was to hear many times again. It was always triggered by drinking rice beer, and essentially it was a complaint that the rice beer in the camps not only tasted and smelled nowhere near as good as the red corn beer in his village, but was also nowhere near as strong and less far inferior when it came to getting drunk. Interestingly, Georges was apparently recalling the flavour and aroma of red corn beer without that flavour and that aroma actually being present. Yet studies on taste and smell tell us that this is very difficult. 
whereas recognising them when they suddenly arise, like the crumbs of Proust's celebrated little Madeleine cake, is much easier. Yet perhaps, like Sutton's research subjects, Georges had constructed a powerful means of recall of his own, in his case a multisensory and emotional set of associations with the physical and dynamic act of sitting down to drink in the company of friends. The taste and smell of rice beer, the regret and longing that they always triggered in him for the beer he preferred, the visual, aural and emotional enjoyment of being in the company of friends, but the reminder of friends and family left behind, the tactility of sitting on the flexible bamboo floor of a house that might feel like a house back home, the anticipation of becoming nicely drunk but not managing to feel as drunk as he would like and used to get on the old beer, all of these sensations combined to make Georges at least feel that he could remember very well what the red corn beer tasted and smelled like. And whether he really could or he couldn't in a neuroscientific sense doesn't really matter, as in itself it becomes a metaphor for the past and his nostalgia for it. What's more, smell and taste are only part of the overall Kareni sensory and aesthetic matrix in question there. Beyond flavour for them is the question of satiety. I never know how to say that properly. Fullness. Like other peoples from Burma and beyond, when the Kareni greet each other, they don't ask, how are you? They ask, have you eaten yet? And in fact, literally, they say, have you finished your rice yet? And in the camps, there's a kind of slightly uncomfortable layer to that normal manner of greeting, um, because although they're not likely to actually go hungry because of the provision of um, rations, it is quite likely that they will have eaten a meal that wasn't very interesting and that may uh, not necessarily have been particularly nutritionally adequate. Um, So being asked in greeting if you've eaten your rice is an inquiry after your general well-being, but it's one um, in which having had enough, being sated, is fundamentally linked to that well-being. Fullness is not just of biological and personal significance, it's of communal importance too, as are the hunger and appetite that are its flip side. So the desire for sticky rice to come at Deku Festival and nostalgic reveries about red corn beer back home and yearnings to be able to taste it again comprise an appetite in Lupton's sense of an emotionally flavoured hunger, a hunger that's more in the memory than the food. Trying to satisfy that hunger becomes in displacement about trying to reintegrate the present and the pre-migration past. So just as a hopeful return back home to one's village in Kareni State is never likely actually to happen, so the appetite may never actually be fully sated, and the fullness that is yearned for is never actually attained. Instead, the particular items of food and drink on which it depends, like sticky rice and red corn beer, become a location of memories of and a metaphor for the life from which refugees are both spatially and temporally distanced by forced displacement. So, sort of coming towards what this means about aesthetics, really, and why aesthetics are um, useful in thinking about displacement. Um, For the Kareni, then, smell and taste and fullness trigger memories in different ways, and they trigger 
um, nostalgia too, and they trigger um, not just actual memories about a past, but they trigger imagined memories about a past. So for Georges, he was um, he has real memories about his uh, past village and about drinking red corn beer in that village, but he also enhances those memories with a, with a nostalgia. At the same time, there are um, refugees who were born in the camps or came to the camps when they were very small. They have no actual memories of back home, of villages inside Kareni State. And yet, um, the longing for Kareni villages, the longing for uh, sticky rice, for um, other kinds of food... Um, also becomes important to them and becomes talked about prior to DQ Festival and in other um, everyday contexts too. And it might not be sourced in actual memories for them, but it becomes part of an imagined past, which also happens through other vehicles as well. But here I'm just talking about it in relation to food and drink. But it becomes part of a myth that gets passed on to them through, amongst other media, food and drink and a reminiscence about both of them. Sarah Matakis has argued that the memory and the senses are so enmeshed that there is no such thing as one moment of perception and then another of memory, and that we remember in and through the body and in the present. For refugees, these complex sensory processes of remember, remembering and, of we have, as we've seen, imagining the past span not just temporal distances but spatial ones too. The focus of memory and nostalgia, recall and longing, isn't just in the past, but for refugees it's also somewhere else. So the shorthand gloss um, that gets used, home, for that distant place, um, isn't necessarily about a real physically defined place where one actually dwells, though it may be, as it was for Georges, um, it may be about somewhere that um, one perceives oneself to want to be or that one perceives oneself to uh, have as an intrinsic part of you and of your history, as it is for uh, refugees who were born in the camps or came when they were very young. It's a focal point of memory and nostalgia through the media of clothing, ritual and, as I've mentioned today, food and drink. But at the same time, a fundamental part of how refugees adapt to displacement is precisely by attempting to make home in the present, in the camps. So while um, it might be unconstructive, as Malky has said, for anthropologists to ideal the worlds that refugees have left behind as home, uh, it's important for us to remember that refugees do that, or may do that, and may work hard in displacement at recreating elements of them and at negotiating the juxtapositions between them and their new abodes. Approaches from the anthropology of aesthetics and material and sensory anthropology, I think, can make significant contributions to understanding attempts to how um, refugees precisely set about seeking to feel at home and to other aspects of the experience of forced displacement and processes of adaptation to it. So it's about exploring sensory experiences and which ones are given particular value and their connections to memory and nostalgia 
about places left behind and exploring whether or not that can give us some insight into what refugees deem important enough to remember, yearn for and recreate. It's also, as we've seen with the case of food and drink for the Kareni, to see if it can illuminate what particular sensory registers and material forms might act as media and metaphors in the transmission of what's culturally important across time and space and generation. Trying to recreate the taste and aroma and texture of home, as Laws put it, is primarily a sensorially oriented activity and the perceptual experiences it creates will be, in part at least, aesthetic ones because of their appeal to the senses and the emotions and the value judgments that are made about them. It's a process by which refugees shore up their sense of themselves. But it's always relative to the other things that exist in juxtaposition to it at different moments and is always in flux. This is cultural aesthetics, as Gosden has phrased it, a concerted attempt to find, or for refugees to regain, what he calls a feeling of rightness about the world, in joining correct styles of action and response. It's a feeling of rightness that can only come about if it's possible to participate or perform in a manner that's already familiar from prior culturally constituted sensory experiences which clearly presents particular challenges to feeling right in a forcibly displaced context when material conditions and objects are not all that they were in the pre-migration past. Thank you very much.